Sunday, the 14th of April, 1918, would be a day long remembered in American Air Service history. At Genjalt Airdrome, a short distance from the old French town of Toul, low heavy clouds, driven by a strong southwest wind, scurried across the dreary morning sky, and a fine mist obscured the tree-lined Airdrome boundary a few hundred yards away. A half-dozen tiny Newport single-seater fighters, each bearing the hat-in-the-ring markings of the 94th Aero Squadron, stood in front of the open mouth of a large shed-like hangar. Inside the low stone structure which served as the 94th Squadron headquarters, three warmly-dressed young pilots waited on standby alert. At a table in the center of the little alert room, two of them, Lieutenants Allen Winslow of Chicago, Illinois, and Douglas Campbell of Mount Hamilton, California, half-heartedly played casino to pass the time. The third, Lieutenant James Meisner, a tall New Yorker, sat a few feet away, idly turning the pages of a book. The three were somewhat disappointed at not being chosen to fly the squadron's first official war patrol, which had taken off earlier that morning. Led by Captain David McKay Peterson, and consisting of Lieutenants Reed Chambers and Edward V. Rickenbacker, the patrol had broken up in the foul weather and had already returned to the field. Winslow, Campbell, and Meisner had begun their scheduled three-hour alert duty at 6 a.m. Because of the cloudy, misty weather, they did not expect anything to happen, and as the slow minutes ticked by, nothing did happen. The marathon casino game continued. Then at 8.45, just as Winslow billed eights and Campbell prepared to take the build, the alert signal sounded. Balloon observers nearby reported two enemy aircraft in the vicinity at 3,000 feet. Books and cards were tossed aside, and the alert pilots sprinted across the wet sod to their waiting Newports. Within a matter of seconds, each of the three pilots was safely buckled in his tiny cockpit, and the contact signal was given. Meisner's gnome rotary refused to start, but Campbell and Winslow took off with a roar into the heavy mist. As they cleared the trees at the edge of the airfield, the pair almost collided with two fast scout biplanes dropping down out of the low-hanging clouds. The planes carried black crosses, and it was apparent that the German pilots, lost in the miserable weather, had ducked below the clouds to find a familiar checkpoint. The ensuing air battle was short and deadly. Both Americans opened fire immediately. Winslow's opponent side-slipped to return the fire, sending a machine-gun burst through the Newport's wing. Winslow made a hard turn, almost brushing the treetops, and fired a long burst into the German's engine and fuselage. A moment later, the enemy aircraft, a Faust D-3, crashed on the edge of the airdrome, marking the first air victory scored by an American-trained unit. Only seconds after Winslow's victim smashed to the ground, Campbell sent an Albatross D-5 down in flames a few hundred yards away. The whole affair had required four and one-half minutes. Nothing could have done more for the morale of the inexperienced 94th Aero Squadron than this sensational success within the sight of hundreds of officers and men at the home airdrome. Although the American Air Service was hardly out of its romper stage by April 1918, it was, nevertheless, a far cry from the tiny and inept aviation section of the Signal Corps on the opening day of America's War to End Wars. On the 6th of April 1917, not a single air unit had been trained for warfare. The two flying fields operated by the Army had only 55 trainers, of which General John J. Pershing later said, Fifty-one were obsolete, and the other four were obsolescent. 
Not a single combat-type plane was owned by the United States Army, and no American then serving in the American military forces had had actual combat flying experience. One Army flyer asserted that not a single air officer in Washington had ever seen a fighting plane. This amazing lack of preparedness is all the more difficult to understand when considering the fact that the European war had been raging for almost three years. Certainly, many political and military leaders in the United States must have anticipated the possibility of war. Yet the entire aviation section contained only 131 officers, mainly pilots and student pilots, and 1,087 enlisted men in April 1917. Only 26 officers were considered fully trained, bearing the rating of junior military aviator. Perhaps more incredible than the almost complete absence of any tangible air strength was the absence of plans and programs for building an air service that could fight in Europe. Indeed, there was an almost complete lack of knowledge on which to base the program to fill the skies with a cloud of planes. In the years of American neutrality, the Army had failed to send trained observers abroad to gather technical and operational information from the battlefront. The U.S. aircraft industry was not prepared to make up its deficiency quickly. Because of the rapid changes in combat models and exaggerated ideas of security, the Allies had not turned to America's aircraft industry for airplanes as they had for other arms and munitions. About a dozen aircraft companies were considered capable of producing military planes, but their output was pitifully small. In the year before America entered the European War, nine factories had delivered only 64 of the 366 planes ordered by the government. Like the air officers in Washington, few if any of the builders had seen a modern tactical aircraft. Fewer still knew what went into its construction other than the airframe and engine.